This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Yeah, I thought we'd uh, consider this morning uh, the subject of how to go- look good naked um, from the Bible, because it's going to speak to us about that. And uh, I don't know whether you have you ever spent time watching Gokwan's TV show, uh, lots and lots of people do, uh, or whether you've even thought about the question of this obsession in our culture with how we're perceived by other people. Uh, do you remember that Robbie Williams song just a couple of years ago? All we ever wanted was to look good naked. It's, it's an obsession in our culture. How am I perceived? I can think of that, even as I come here today, how am I going to be perceived? And thought goes into how, how the room's set up. How are we going to be perceived by how we set ourselves up as a church? How does that work? Um, almost inevitably, you've probably got a Facebook account, and you've thought about what kind of picture you use to present yourself. Uh, maybe you haven't, but even then, perhaps the decision not to think about decision in itself, isn't it? Uh, and you choose what you share with other people online, and what don't you share. Uh, we consider, how will other people think of me? And if I wasn't hiding behind all of these things, what would I look like? What would they think of me? How might I be perceived by other people? Uh, it's an obsession in our culture. Uh, and it's a right one. There's something uh, important about thinking about how am I considered by other people. How we are matters. We're made for relationship. It matters how we are with other people. Uh, and right at the beginning of the Bible, Jesus says, in his word, uh, that man and woman were naked and they felt no shame. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? They were with one another, and there was no sense of shame. There was no needing to hide behind any kind of uh, cover and barrier. They were just able to be with one another freely. And there's something in that that can feel both uh, deeply appealing. Wouldn't it be good to be able to be accepted? To not have to hide behind everything. And yet, at the same time, you think, can it really? Surely, no, that's not our experience of life, is it? How could that ever happen? Uh, it feels uh, like it rings true for us, and uh, it feels appealing, and yet it feels so far removed from our day-to-day experience of life, doesn't it? That we know uh, that experience of hiding day-to-day. And I want to take us back to uh, where that uh, saying comes from, of being naked uh, and feeling no shame uh, at the start of the Bible. And I'm aware that if we go back to the very opening pages of the Bible, maybe you've got one, um, or you've got a phone app that you can make use of, um, I'll trust that that's what you're doing rather than updating Facebook. Um, we're all changing our picture. Well, yeah. And I, in some sense, that would be a helpful application here, wouldn't it, perhaps? But um, we're going to come to the book of Genesis. And I don't know what you make of uh, the Bible or what you make of uh, the book of Genesis, whether you've even thought about it. Here's something that I consider of this. Uh, we're talking about a book that is um, 3,300 years old, probably. Uh, so it stood the test of time. It's still with us. Uh, And it stands as the first book in the Bible. It lays the foundations for everything that comes afterwards. And yet you might think, well, surely, isn't it just some sort of a myth? Is it really true? Does it tell a true story? No, I I think it tells a true story. I'm not asking you to... I think it is. 
Um, but I don't need you quite to accept that, just that me moving. Um, I need to consider something else as we come to it. I want to consider that it's an origin story, that it tells the story of where we come from. And actually, everybody in this world has some sort of an origin story, something that we use to explain where we've come from. You run into that with other people, with yourself? What is it the story of? Uh, you might have even just spotted the trend in, in cinema in recent years to, to revisit old uh, stories. Batman begins. Let's go back and find the origins of his story. Let's reboot this franchise and, and see again where does it come from. Uh, we're deeply interested in where we've come from. Because where we've come from shapes where we are. There's a connection between the two, isn't there? And we all have some sort of way that we make sense of where we are today. We say, well, it began like this. And if you watched um, Brian Cox's Wonders of Life on TV last month. Fascinating, wasn't it? I I find the guy just enthralling. I don't agree with everything he says. And I I don't know if there's anybody who can talk about how there's going to be this cold, bleak future ahead with a big smile on his face. But but he just seems to be able to do it and look really cool at the same time. Um, And he's got theories about the origins of things that many people, I guess, today would resonate with. That, that everything comes from chaos. You think, well, are we going from chaos to where we are today? Does, does that make sense? But that's an origin story that some people would believe today. Or they would say, well, everything comes from massive power being released. And that gets you to be able to explain the world that we come into today, we find ourselves in. Or people say, well, no, there are, there are great rules that govern everything. Everything comes from a, a basis of law, really. And Brian Cox sounds a bit like that when he talks about origins. He would say, yeah, there's chaos and there's power, but there are the laws of physics, and they define everything. And I don't want to overly argue with the laws of physics because they're helping me to stand up and have the roof not fall on my head. Um, Maybe they define things, maybe they describe things. There's something of that, but is that enough to explain where we find ourselves standing today? Are those kind of explanations enough to explain why a group of people would come together, spend time with one another, why we'd have community groups during the week. It seems to me that perhaps the origin of things might be more to do with love. We need some kind of an origin story that can deal with our deep desire for relationship and acceptance. That we all experience and all feel that we'd love to be accepted by people, but in a chaos power rules kind of universe, it doesn't really seem to make a great deal of sense. Why would it matter? Something in us says there surely must be something more. And that's the kind of story uh, Genesis is going to tell us. And so I guess the question I want to ask you is not initially, does it, does it historically ring true as this is the history of the beginning of the world, although I think it is, but does it make emotional sense to you? Can you think in those kind of terms? Does it ring true with you? Does you that, that resonates with my experience of life. Because so many of the explanations we deal with don't seem to deal with the reality that we find ourselves living in, as far as I can see. Uh, and so I want to take you uh, into just a little bit of this and see uh, what's there. I'm going to read, uh, just to begin with, um, from Genesis 2, 24 uh, to 3, verse 11. Have a listen in on this. Uh, see if you can spot Gokwan's obsession with nakedness. This is the naked paragraphs of the Bible. Uh, it just keeps coming up in here, so listen in for that. Uh, listen in for the kind of origin story this is telling us. <clears throat> so it starts like this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you'll die. 
No, you won't die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was delightful to look at and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? He said, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then he asked, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? It's an origin story, isn't it? Did you see this progression from they were naked and there was no shame. And then they become aware of their nakedness. They, they were always naked in the first place, but now they know about it. Do you notice that? Uh, in verse 7, they, were, they knew they were naked. And they take action. They begin to cover up. <coughs> go, I can understand that. That's instinctive. We got dressed this morning. Um, <laughs> and then, then the Lord comes walking in the garden, and, and they hide. So they don't just cover up with clothes. They go, we've got to get, hide in the bushes as well. And they say they were afraid because of their nakedness. It's progression from absolutely no shame to we've got to hide and cover up because we're scared. And the ideal at the beginning feels so appealing and yet so alien to us. Such an impossible thing to be able to grasp hold of and yet we can fully understand how it ends up, can't we? That sense of covering ourselves, hiding behind different things and feels so much of our experience. Makes emotional sense, doesn't it? Yes. It rings true in our experience. And it poses me the question, I think, why does this happen? How has this progression happened? Why have we got there? How do you get to that sort of thing happening? And and there might be all kinds of theories as to why that happens, but I guess, for now, in this story, why does it happen? It's at least a good question to ask, isn't it? Why does this say that this uh, progression happened? Why does this say they went from being happy with each other to hiding from each other? Do you notice what it says? Is it that they broke the rules? Was this rule-breaking at the, the root of a, a, a rule-based universe? Is that the kind of story it's telling? Well, there's a level at which that's kind of true, isn't it? God said, don't do this, and they, they did it. But is it just enough to say it was rule-breaking? It doesn't really work that way, does it? There are situations where you might contravene the rules, but actually it doesn't just feel like someone's broken the rules. It feels much deeper than that, and this seems to go much deeper as well. So notice that in verse, uh, verse 6. Here's the motivation. The tree was good. It was delightful. It was desirable. This isn't just some kind of surface break the rules kind of thing going on here. This is much deeper. It's about desire. Which interestingly, of course, is exactly why we do everything we do. We always do what we want to do, don't we? And sometimes we try and kind of cut ourselves up and say, no, I didn't really want to do it. Yeah, but you did do it, so... We do know that actually you did want to do that. And part of you felt reluctant and you, were, you weren't entirely sure you wanted to do it, but in, on balance, you did it, so that was what you wanted to do. Life's always like that, isn't it? We try and wheedle out of it, but actually, we always do what we want to do. We follow our desires. And the Bible later picks up on this incident, partly because it's such a defining moment in human history. And it says this wasn't rule-breaking, it was relational betrayal. Uh, that... 
that the man and woman here are described as having been betrothed to Christ. They were uh, prepared for marriage with him as a human race to, to Jesus. And yet they were led astray from a pure devotion to him. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can look it up later if you want to. Uh, it says they were, they were led astray. It was like a, an act of adultery happened here. It wasn't rule breaking. It was relational betrayal. Just so much the experience, isn't it, of what happens? I don't just break the rules. I, I betray people. And that isn't all that happens because it then leads to this relational breakdown afterwards, doesn't it? It's not rule breaking. It's relational betrayal leading to relational breakdown. As they begin to hide from one another and then they begin to hide from their God as well. It's terrible, isn't it? It's a horrible uh, situation. Horrible kind of situation to happen. Love has been lost, broken, torn apart. And it it fractures everything that seems so beautiful at the beginning of this story. becomes this horrible mess, spiralling out of control. You think, well, how, how can you ever get out of this situation? Well, they've got an idea. They've got a way of trying to get out of this. Do you notice that? They had a strategy. Now, they had a plan to kind of paint over it and, and fix everything. With fig leaves. It's one of those famous incidents, isn't it? It crosses over into our language. The idea of sewing together some fig leaves to cover your bits. And you just think about it. It's just absurd. It's just an absurd situation. And yet it is so much a situation that happens in our world where we think, well, surely I could cover this up. I don't know if you know the story of Eddie Rama. Eddie Rama is a fascinating figure. He was an artist in Albania, uh, and he became mayor of Tirana um, about 12 12 years ago for most of the last decade. Uh, And Tirana was a horrible mess post-communism. It was a crime-ridden city. uh, And this artist, Eddie, became the mayor. And he decided that he was going to fix his city. He was going to reduce the crime rate with a paintbrush. And so he started getting buildings repainted in really bright colours. And he replaced some of the street lights and he planted thousands of trees in the city. And it worked. And the crime rate there dropped massively with a paintbrush. It's just a remarkable idea, isn't it? We need more artists in politics. It would kind of help us, probably. Um, And yet you hear it and you think... Yeah, but I've done decorating, and after a little while, it starts to get a bit grubby, and the paper peels a bit, and, and the dirt comes back, and the light bulb's going to get kind of gone, and, and the trees, it's going to be trees, but then it's going to be kind of overgrown wilderness kind of mess as well, isn't it? It's not quite enough to just paint over the cracks. It doesn't last. It's, it's something of a solution. Beauty can do that, but it's not a complete solution. Um, I did my uh, university degree at Bath, and my parents live up in the Midlands, so I used to make um, not very regular journeys back home to see them during term time. I deliberately chose somewhere to study that was just far enough away that I could get there, but there was no way I'd be able to go back every weekend, because I wanted to have some independence. Um, But it meant that I would travel into London on the train, and I would travel through London to St Pancras. Um, And to try and dodge the peak time fares, I'd get stuck at St Pancras every time for about two hours. Uh, and 15 years ago, St Pancras Station was horrible. It was this dark, dirty station. Maybe you would have visited it, I don't know. Um, it was just an absolutely horrible place to wait. Uh, on a Friday evening, when I wanted to be 45 minutes up the line uh, with my parents, uh, and I was stuck in this dirty, filthy station. 
15 years on, St Pancras Station is, I think, one of the most beautiful bits of London. They cleaned it up, painted it. It looks absolutely beautiful. I did some training in London over the last couple of years, and I would divert my journey to pass through St Pancras. I'm sad, I know, but um, <laughs> it would add a couple of extra minutes, but I'd get to walk through underneath the kind of Eurostar terminal, and just, it was just, beauty has that impact. I, I want to pass through somewhere that's beautiful. Um, I like watching Grand Designs. I'm never going to have the money to build my Grand Designs house. I wanted to be an architect till I was 16, and then I decided I couldn't be bothered to do seven years of study. Um, and I sort of denied myself that kind of future, I suppose. But there's something about beauty that feels like it can transform things. And it can for a while. It can have an effect. And yet you look at this hiding behind fig leaves, and you think it's just not enough, is it? It's not enough to clean up. Something is far more broken in this situation in this origin story, than, than can just be painted over. It just doesn't work. It's not enough of an answer. Well, what then? What can be done? <laughs> That's my boy. What can be done? Well, do you notice what happens in verse 8? Then the man and his wife, newly fig leaf covered, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the evening. Then God steps in. And I wonder how that feels for them. They've just royally blown it. They've not just broken the rules, they've committed relational betrayal against Jesus. And then he walks in the room. How do you feel when that happens? And we, um, a couple of years ago, when we just had one of our boys, we, uh, we took a cheap holiday staying at my parents' house. Um, and they got home early. Uh, and we hadn't really been thinking about tidying the place. We were going to do it in the afternoon before they arrived, and they arrived six hours early. And they walked in the house, and it was a tip. And my mum is very pristine about the way she keeps her house. And it would have looked pristine six hours later, but they got back early. So it wasn't really our fault. But it was that horrible moment of seeing them, uh, it, seeing them arrive on the, on the driveway, and thinking, oh, everything's a complete mess. And you're just sprinting around, juggling a child in the background, trying to, can we just make it look a little bit more tidy? feel like that, couldn't it, here? Here is the Lord God walking in the garden. Here is Jesus come before he's got a human body, walking in the garden in the evening. And you've just realised how bad things are. You've just become aware of your situation. And you, you dive into the bushes, you think, I can understand why they would do that. Seems like the right kind of thing to do, doesn't it? What's going on here? Well, if we'd read the previous chapter, we'd uh, see a little bit more. Um, it's the seventh day. And Jesus has come looking for rest. He's come walking in the garden looking to chill out with humanity. He's come for a walk. He's come for fellowship. He's come for a relationship. And he's expecting them to be there because he's looking forward to spending time with them. And he gets there and they're hiding. And he asks the question, and it's not the kind of question that he doesn't know the answer to. He knows where they are, but he asks the question of them. And we might instinctively think this is some kind of accusing, shouting question, but I don't think it is. This is an invitation. This is good news being preached to them with a question. Where are you? It's an invitation. Mm. With open arms, where are you? I was looking forward to spending time with you, and where are you? I'd like to spend some time with you. Could we have some time together? And it reflects something completely different about Jesus compared to anything else that anybody else ever thought. 
certainly a different way of thinking to the way that we would tend to think, I think. See, when I do something wrong, when I break the rules, and I love to think it's just that, but it is relational betrayal, I think I'm going to get in trouble for this. I reason from sin to wrath, sin to judgment, to use words that we might use from the Bible. I reason in that kind of direction. Jesus, it would seem, doesn't reason quite that way. He reasons from sin to mercy. From sin to invitation. They're hiding away, ashamed of their situation, and he comes and invites them. He comes and calls them to himself. It's completely different, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. We sang it earlier. Someone so different. Any other kind of God would, would come in and just wash them away, wipe them away, burn them. But he comes looking for their company with an invitation for them, and not just for them, but for everyone who followed them. <coughs> he has an invitation for us. Just with a question, where are you? I think it's the question you'd ask of me and of you today. I've come for a walk, where are you? Would you come and spend some time with me? This is Jesus, this is what he does. If it was quite that simple, this would be the end of the Bible, and the Bible would be a very short book. There is a little bit more going on here, isn't there? And we feel the suspicion of everything. We, the, the problem here is much deeper than, than that. It can't just be dealt with with an invitation. Surely there's something more. And you go, yeah, there's a whole lot more story to tell just yet. Let's look just at a little bit more of it. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 3 and just make a few quick observations about that to, to see where this goes. And we got up to verse 11. Let's read from verse 12. Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God Asked the woman, what is it you've done? The woman said, I, it was the serpent. Uh, he deceived me, I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're more cursed than any livestock, and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I'll intensify your labour pains, I'll bear, you'll bear children in anguish, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. <clears throat> and he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, don't eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. He'll eat from it by means of painful labour all the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. He'll eat the plants of the field, he'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for dust you are, and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. The Lord God sent him away from the garden, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the men out and stationed cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Those aren't comfortable words, are they? Oh, things in there that just they feel like they're great against us, and they're meant to. And yet at the same time, they do resonate, don't they? So much of our experience uh, is told in these verses. Do you notice what he says to them? He actually firstly begins by talking about himself in verse 15. Do you see that? There's going to be someone who comes from your family and there's going to be a war. There's going to be opposition between uh, the serpent, this tempter, 
the evil one, and between those who come from the man and the woman. They're going to be at, at war with each other. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Here's the, the word Jesus who comes walking in the garden. He says, I'm going to be bruised for you. I'm going to be the bruised God. I'm with you and I'm going to suffer for you. Someone's going to have to pay the price for this and it's going to be me. The rest of the Bible picks that up to, to tell us that it's talking about him. He will be that offspring. He promises it. He's prophesying the future of humanity here. Telling them what's going to happen. He's the bruised one. So this is going to cost everything. It's going to bring death into the world. And above all, it's going to bring my own death, says Jesus. It's going to cost me my life to defeat evil. I'm going to get struck. I'm going to get bruised in the process. And any death that happens subsequently is going to be pointing towards that. But something has happened that's so serious that it can't be repainted. It needs, to, it needs to die. And then be reborn. And then be resurrected. There's going to be life beyond death that will come because though he will be struck down, he will then live. And you see what else he says. He talks to them about having children and says it's going to be painful. And I've only watched that happening, but I'm convinced it's painful. And he says that the man's going to work and it's going to be painful. Have you done a hard day's work? It's just like pushing against the grain all day long. They were told in the previous chapters that that your mission is to spread goodness into the world, to fill the world with people and to cultivate the world. And everything they were meant to do gets frustrated here. Everything that they were designed to be in this world is, is frustrated, is subjected to frustration. It means what they can't now do, having betrayed Jesus like this, they can't go and just create heaven on earth themselves. It'll be too painful. They won't be able to do it. They'll be able to do something. And there are more than two people on the planet, so they've, something's happened. And there's been cultivation of the world, so something's happened, but, but it's not fully everything that this world should be. Everything's not beautiful. Everything's not exactly how it's meant to be. And Jesus speaks death to to us doing it ourselves. That DIY instinct that says, let's use fig leaves to cover up. He says, no, you're not going to be able to do this. You can't create a brand new creation yourself. Trying hard is not going to work. Repainting is not going to work. Everything has to die. And then it can be reborn. Then there can be real life. And he says that again in the final paragraphs from verse 20. Verse 22, he takes, takes an animal and he kills it in verse 21. He says, you tried fig leaves to cover yourself. Well, I think you need to be covered. Your instinct was right. But a few leaves is not going to do the job. Let me shed blood, that blood of an animal here, to clothe you. And even that won't really do the job. And you'll know it won't really do the job, but it, it gives you more of a hint of what's required. That in time... I who speak to you will be killed for you. And I will clothe you with myself. Then you can have life. But don't think you can cover yourself up with a few leaves. It's not going to work. You need there to be bloodshed. You need there to be death so there can be life. And yet there's a tree in the garden that's, that's, that's like life itself. And Jesus says, no, you can't just go and grab that. That's not going to get you life. 
You can't save yourself. You can't do this yourself. We've got to shut you out of here. To just make yourself have life by grasping at it, that's not going to work either. Out you go. Go out where it's hard. Go out where you're going to die. Because then you can come to new life. And he blocks the way. With angels and a sword. And later he gives them a little model of that, called the tabernacle, with curtains that have got angels embroidered on them. And then they build it into a building called the temple. And it's got angels embroidered on its curtains. And when this finally happens and Jesus comes and dies, the biographers, the eyewitnesses who document it, tell us that those curtains got torn down at the point that Jesus died. That the barrier that stopped you getting into life, the barrier that stopped you getting into rest, the barrier that stopped you walking with Jesus, falls down. It's ripped down as he dies. But you can't do it yourself. You need somebody else who can do it for you. Line after line after line, he says, the only way forward from this is death, followed by new life. Your instinct is that something has to happen. Your instinct is to to repaint. But it must die so that it can be reborn. It's the only way. It's the only way to deal with something so deep that fractures right into the heart of humanity and the heart of the universe. And it's the only way to get back to, well, to even better than how it was. They were naked and they felt no shame. The end of the story isn't quite like that. The end of the story has no shame, but it, it has, they were clothed. But at the end, Jesus said, I'll clothe you with myself. You can wear me as your clothing. And then you won't need to be ashamed at all. And you'll be pure and you'll feel no shame from other people and no shame from God. You won't go and hide. You won't need to. And it's what will happen as you respond to my invitation. Jesus is the crucified one. He's the one who sheds his own blood for us. And he's the one who makes the invitation. Where are you? How do you look good naked? Here the crucified one make his invitation to you and to me. And come. Come and respond. Just come and come out of hiding. Come and receive his welcome. And he'll do what my son wants to do and he'll cover you by wrapping you up in himself. So there'll be no more shame and no more hiding and we can have what we long for. See how this story makes, it makes an emotional sense for us. And it does make historical sense as well. Because we're not just talking about an idea, we are talking about Jesus who was eyewitnessed as dying in human history. Eyewitnesses saw the curtain temple, the, the temple curtains fall down. <coughs> Eyewitnesses documented it for us. So it's not just a good idea that rings true with us, but it is that. And even more, it's truthful beauty and beautiful truth. Yeah. Jesus' invitation to you and to me. I'd like us to pray. Why don't you get to your feet and let's pray. Jesus, some of us are here and we're, we're kind of confident in ourselves and we like to try and think we can sort this out ourselves. Yeah, you speak and you disabuse us of that. You, you show us that's not, that's not the way at all. 
just an invitation from you, the crucified one, for us to respond to. And some of us, Jesus, we feel like we're, our only option is to hide. We haven't got the overconfidence. And yet you just invite us to come. And whether we'd call ourselves Christian or, or not, your invitation's for us. So I pray, Jesus, give us ears to hear your invitation. Amen. Let that invitation drown out the alternatives that say, no, you should hide. And no, you can do it yourself. Thank you, Jesus, that your invitation is, come, I've done it for you. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, yeah. you're like no other. You're the one who came and found us while we were hiding. You pursued us when we were running away. And you've invited us to come to yourself so that you might wrap us up in yourself and free us from the shame that we feel that we long not to feel. Thank you, Jesus, that that you're the God who wants to walk with us and we'd like to walk with you. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.